Hello out there. This is Edgar Papke. And I'm Ken Sagendorf. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to True Alignment and uh, celebrating Juneteenth today. Yeah. All things alignment, Juneteenth included. Indeed. Live from the uh, Innovation Incubator in the Anderson College of Business and Computing at Regis University in Denver, Colorado. Quite a day today. Yeah. Say more, Edgar. Well, uh, I think that uh, when you when you look at uh, Juneteenth and uh, what it is intended to celebrate, I think more than anything else at this time in our history, in our history as a, as a country, uh, really what it does, it, it celebrates awareness, an awareness of who we are, where we are in our history, in our evolution as, uh, as humankind and the awareness and the importance of mutual respect and the honoring of the individual. So Edgar, for the, for the audience, you and I have had this conversation multiple times, but you know, you've said to me multiple times about being now in the age of awareness, mm -hmm. uh, more so than ever before. Um, talk, give the audience a little bit of, uh, you know, what the ages in your mind have been that now we're in that age of awareness. Yeah, I think if you look at the historical arc um, and you peel back, we, we're moving from this place of uh, the information age and the uh, advancement of technology in new ways. And prior to that, the Industrial Revolution, the Industrial Era, the Industrial Age. And prior to that, we're talking about knowledge and agriculture. And so as we look at the, we look at the arc of our history as humankind, we've come to this place where we've created such incredible technology and how we're evolving as a society. And that over the last, since the Industrial Revolution, the Industrial Age, uh, we, we've come to a place of questioning more and more who we are as human beings. And, and we've mentioned this before in this podcast, that when you think about psychology and the history of psychology and the study of human behavior, it's relatively speaking, over the span of mankind, humankind, we're talking here now about a really a small window. Pretty and young. yet, and it's an accelerated window of understanding, and that I believe that with everything that we've created so far, that we see this acceleration in having an awareness of who we are as human beings, this acceleration and this depth of understanding that we've never had before, that right now what we're doing is we're, we're being confronted with really who are we and what does this all mean and how do we carry this forward? I, I think that's probably a, I would say that that's a question that all humankind has had. We've always had it. I think right now, along with everything else that's happening in our world, the acceleration of change, that there's an acceleration and that we're at the place where we have to be more aware of who we are and and alignment and and what we and what we want so a little bit uh, different level of acceptance about this searching for who we are i mean juneteenth we're the first right this is the first year that it's a, a federal holiday here yeah. in the united states mm -hmm. um i know the news this morning said that even though it's a federal holiday some states <laughs> don't recognize it yet um there's lots of change, right? I mean, as we realize, I mean, and this is this is really, um, you know, not only are we all 
claiming new space in, in, in the who am I conversation and, and, and what does that mean? I mean, we're Juneteenth, we're in the middle of Pride Month. Um, we have a lot of this questioning of who we are and what that means and, and uh, an increasing ability to bring that out. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, to bring it out publicly and, and have these conversations and, you know, no, no pun intended here, but, but to, to, to have some ownership and some pride of self, I mean, at a, at a level that we haven't seen in a long time. Yeah. And it goes all the way back to, uh, and I think this is that hundred years from 1900 to, to the millennium that uh, you, you, uh, you look at as, and some even coined to term the century of self, because we we saw that there was this um, manifestation of better understanding human behavior and at a deeper level, understanding human motivation. And we look at it through the context of business. And I wrote about this over a decade ago in, in the book, True Alignment. It's hard to believe it's a decade now. Um, and the story of Edward Bernays and uh you know, the birth of public relations and, and you start getting a sense and we under, we better understood where the idea of propaganda came from and how it was used. So we've got this ongoing deepening of understanding of human behavior and the self and the recognition of how every person matters. And when you think about what Juneteenth is about at a really deep level, it's really about recognizing and recognizing and showing value in the individual and the manifestation of diversity, inclusion, um, equity in the workplace and in our society is all just really a, this, this awakening, I think, over a longer period of time. And it's coming more and more to the, to the forefront as an awakening of the importance of recognizing each human being for who they are. So, so here's, you know, Edgar, as I, as you say that, and, and thank you for sharing that, but as you say that, you know, the claiming the last century is a century of self, uh, there's some fakeness there because it was the century of self was, you were allowed to go and do, right. I'm reminded of the great Gatsby here. You're allowed to seek like this exuberance that is personal but you really had to get back into the system. It really didn't matter. You could have the exuberance. You could have, you could go on a drug binge. You could have, right, Hollywood comes and, you know, these stars have these, you know, super different lifestyles that get sensationalized. So you could have this, but you always came back to kind of the same system. And, and now I think this age of awareness is, it's, it's about the individual, but it's also about, a desire to change the system. I mean, it's not just about honoring the individual and getting back to sameness. Yeah. It is honoring the individual and continuing with that honoring. I mean, and I, you know, hope I'm hopeful today we get into a conversation about, you know, that self and then what that means um, to bring self to an organization. Yeah. And I think a good way of interpreting that is to look at it as a layering effect. So systems thinking. So looking at it, that we're in a system. And so that's the broader context that we're in. And then we find ourselves in organizations and communities, and so those provide a further context to our experience and, and who we are. And then, of course, in our closer relationships, and then eventually we wind up 
at the individual interpersonal, beyond the interpersonal, the in, uh, intrapersonal level, which is who am I? And so we begin to see ourselves operating in a broader system. So why we can have the dynamic of having a dream and a set of aspirations, we find ourselves back in the context and the system that we're operating in. And so we can stretch and we can have the, uh, much like the American dream. So we stretch aspirationally, and then we find that there's also constraints within the system. And I, and I agree with you. I think that at this point, what we're really doing is looking at it systemically. Uh, you, you, you said something that's so important is that now we have a federal hol- holiday, yet some states have chosen not to, not, not to participate And so if you were looking at systemically, just like in an organization, you'd say, well, parts of the organization don't want to align with the rest of the organization. Now what do we do? Well, we have to be able to step back and see that systemically, which is what I think Juneteenth is, is a a challenge to us all to see the system and to recognize uh, the holiday of itself is is a way of reminding ourselves that we're part of a system and the system does need to evolve and change over time that we can't let it stagnate or create too many constraints we have to do is see it through a creative design lens one of the things that um that i was pondering uh, early earlier today um as i was driving down to the school was um the idea of america america is is a, is a by design a democracy and it's very unique and what it's established in the history of, again, history of humankind and our evolution of being. And then at what point do we look in America and say that we have to possibly think about a redesign? And to what level do we create the redesign? One through law, legislature, another is with the boundaries we create and yeah, perhaps. the fluidness in, with, in which we live. These are all really, really interesting questions to start you know, creating an undertaking of. Well, and so and so difficult. I mean, how? I mean, I um, I'm going to nerd out here for a little bit uh, in my in my work in academe. I've always been asked, you know, what I've done in the area of diversity, and that's been an in, increasingly important topic uh, in my career. Mm-hmm. And and you know, one of the one of the things that I uh, am very proud of um, hosting was um, these learning communities around a book called, um, oh, I should remember the name of the book. <laughs> it's going to come to me in a little bit. Whistling Vivaldi. Mm-hmm. Um, have I told you about this before? I, I think you'll enjoy the backstory of the title of the book. And so Whistling Vivaldi, the name of the book and, and um The name of the book comes from the author, and I'll share that author's name in just a second, Um, comes from the author being a grad student in Chicago in the 1950s when race relations were really strained. And what he recognized as a social scientist was, Claude Steele is his name, by the way, Um, what Claude uh, recognized is he and his colleagues would go out in the city of Chicago, African-American colleagues would go out, and they would, um, they'd recognize some behaviors. People would cross the street when they were coming down the street. Oh, yeah. Familiar. Women would move the Tom purse it. to the other side. They'd grab uh, the arm of a man they might have been with. Um, 
And one of his colleagues was studying uh, classical music. And if he whistled classical music, they could undo some of those behaviors. And um, that's the title of the book comes from Whistling Vivaldi. And that really was, uh, you know, Claude describes kind of the experiments he does in the laboratory to mimic human behavior and study human behavior. And some of them are really, uh, you know, really slick things, um, how you how you give people a context. And, and what he discovers in the book is if, if this is important to you, stereotype threat can be more detrimental to your performance. And that's really what he measured as performance. And, you know, he did it in a lot of school settings, but it really was about, it could have been about athletic performance. Uh, and, and the way that we use stereotype threat is really to have people describe themselves in all these learning communities at multiple institutions, across institutions, actually. And what we realize is people are not monolithic. They are, they are complex. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the identity that you bring to a certain situation can change in a moment. Right. And Juneteenth is not, I mean, I think that it's easy to think that this is about, uh, the monolith of just race, but people are more than race, right? I mean, they're a collection of things. And I, and I think as we talk about, you know, the design of our, of our social fabrics, um, changing right before our eyes is we're realizing repeatedly that people are not just, they're not just singular identities. They're a complex set of identities you know, some are, some are moved forward in certain situations and some are moved backwards in certain situations. Um, but they don't go away. I mean, I think that's the, that's the kicker. I mean, that's what we're starting to realize. That's what, you know, that's the, that's the importance of Pride Month. That's the importance of Juneteenth is, you know, these identities, they don't go away. They're there and it doesn't matter what the system is. Those identities are still there even if somebody has to suppress them in a situation. And I think the age of awareness is, is empowering people to bring those identities forward when they want to. Yeah, and to create a space for that. And so let's connect it to business if we, yeah. if we very quickly. And when we think about inclusion and we think about diversity and the honoring, what we're really talking about here is the honoring and understanding of the individual. Yes. And so that self piece and awareness piece not only then extends it uh, to ourselves and say, well, how, where, and how well do I understand myself, which is part of the path to recognizing others. I can't understand you until I understand myself. And then to be able to translate that to just, and it's, it, my intention here is not to oversimplify it because there is, there's depth and levels to how it is that we build relationships. That the simple antidote here is our ability to openly listen to one another, to recognize one another, and then to take it to that level of being able to say, yes, we're all individuals, and for me to really understand you, I need to be able to listen. I need to engage. And I think that's the aspect also of what we hear the churn being in organizations is that, yeah, I just don't want to be, a, people just don't want to really truly be a cog in the wheel. They want to be recognized for who they are as individuals. And that takes us all the way back then to the understanding of the uh, 
of the need for really being able to beyond honoring and to be able to truly interpret and understand diversity, understand paths to inclusion, and what our different forms of quote-unquote equity are. Uh, and and it's, it's about treating each individual for who they are. And in our, in our systems, we, like you said, we're not probably as good at that as we, as we can be. That takes an extreme amount of effort, right? I mean, when you think of an organization as a collection of individuals, and you talk about a you know, behemoth like a Microsoft that has hundreds of thousands of employees, uh-huh. you know, how do you, how do you manage an inclusive organization with that many individuals? And I, you know, I always, um, here's the thing that I've always struggled with in, in, in business. You know, when we talk about the assessment of somebody's role and then we look at the metrics that are used to assess their role, it's usually a performance indicator. You and I spend so much time talking about culture right? Um, for this exact reason is how do you design, how do you design and align culture that is inclusive of those individuals such that it mirrors the care you're trying to give for your customer. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, and that's, I mean, it sounds pretty radical. It sounds pretty radical and yet uber simple at the same time, mm-hmm. but so, so difficult to do. I mean, that's what you've made your career on, right? I mean, your, your true alignment is, is really a continuous conversation about how in motion these things are inside of an organization and inside the mind of a leader. Yeah, and you just you just uh, you just said it for in its simplicity. The idea is that it's an ongoing dialogue, an ongoing conversation that exists through the entire organization. That this is a conversation that uh, leadership undertakes, not just at the top or middle. Or it, it leadership needs to, and then uh, leadership needs to be able to uh, engage at that level of conversation as well as then every individual, because unless you cascade it through the organization, unless it's reinforced, role modeled, and unless it happens in that way, you're not going to be able to uh, manifest it systemically. So this is where the different layers start showing up and how well it is we guide an organization or we make it a part of our day-in, day-out way of being. And it's really amazing because there are organizations and we get to work with them where where they strive for that l- for that level of uh, of connection, uh, which then translates to employee engagement, right? Yeah, which is what everyone is so 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 much seeking. And then, and you think about this socially. Yeah, wh- when we think about um, w- when we think about racism, and uh, we think about um, the struggles that we w- that we currently have and have had for such a long time in our society how much how much we depend on the just the simplicity of acknowledging one another and listening to one another and being inclusive in that way yeah i'm drawn back to the images in my mind of the me model and the mutual the importance of mutual respect um in that conversation really to create the competitive advantage right i mean we talk about our competitive advantage nautilus and that mutual respect at the core of that. Yeah, when you think about the coming together and you think about the acceleration of the United States in terms of its history, uh, at times when when people came together, 
and there was an acknowledgement of, of a sense of cohesion that existed, a sense of alignment. And when that's in play and the progress the country makes and also when it struggles with it and you see a decline in that, in that connectivity, that togetherness and how we struggle with that. And it, what's interesting to me too is that you'll see that just like in an organization, there's parts of our society that are in a way trying to hold on to what, what was. And, you know, this idea of nostalgia. Mm. And uh, the, I think there's so much evidence that says that nostalgia is really focused on what we like and what, what feels good to us. That's not necessarily what, what, we, what someone else likes or what feels good to them. Yeah. So as we try and maintain what we honor and what we like and the principal uh, core values that we have, I think it requires that ongoing dialogue and conversation about what those core values, uh, how they're represented and how they're brought to life in the current context. And we continuously move those forward as well. And we're able to understand how they apply as opposed to we want to turn back the clock and make it, you know, keep it the way it was. What we need to do is look forward and think about what can be and what we can all manifest together moving forward. That's what makes great organizations and businesses brilliant is that they're able to manifest those conversations. That's what systems design and design thinking and all these different approaches to using our creative being and to realize that it's not just an intellectual pursuit. This is an emotional pursuit that we're all in together and to be able to manifest that. Yeah. You just, uh, Edgar, I just had a parenting epiphany. Um, I just Do had, I hear a movie coming? Uh, no. I, I have to tell you, I well, I'll, I'll give you a movie, but um, it's not going to relate to our conversation. Um, for Father's Day, we went to see uh, the new Top Gun movie. Oh. It's phenomenal. It actually really is really good. It's got just the right mix. It's a simple story, simple, predictable story, yep. but with the right mix of the nostalgia um, from the original movie built in. Yeah, um, and still the still that same hero's journey that is, you know, highly predictable at the end. Um, but it was it was good, engaging in a way, um, right? Not going to win any Oscars. It's just pure entertainment. But um, the parenting epiphany I had was um, my oldest is is super emotional, mm-hmm. young person. Um, and 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 she is she waffles between this selfishness of figuring out who she is and when is it okay to say, I want this, you know, for myself, for my situation, et cetera. And how do I, you know, and I'm always pushing the, but you're in relationship with all of these other people. And, and, you know, part of my parenting epiphany is, you know, when she left for work this morning, you know, for her summer full-time job, I mean, just near tears and said, I'm going to go cry in the car. And, and, you know, I know that, you know, my hackles get up so quickly with how emotional she is. I mean, she's just a super emotional person. And I, um, I have a tendency to want to fix something. Well, hackles makes you sound a little older too. (laughs) I feel a little older, Edgar. Um, Uh, Hackles. (laughs) You know, I just, there's something emotionally, my emotional state when she's so emotion, uh, full, I, like, I get angry, honestly. I get angry, like, why does everything have to be such an emotional thing? Like, it's just a thing. 
Like you don't have to, you don't have to be upset about it before it even happens. <laughs> um, but I realize in that time that, you know, the struggle I face is, is to listen. The struggle I face is to listen and try and listen with enough vulnerability to understand why she's coming, why she's coming at these things, um, and not really, um, you know, she said to me yesterday, we were doing something and we had a little tiff and she said, you know, I didn't really need your help. I can do it on my own. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, and it's important, it's important, um, to let her, but you know, I guess my parenting epiphany is how do I, even when my emotions are there and they're raw, perhaps, how do I get to a point where I have enough wherewithal to listen So a couple of thoughts come to mind. Now first, that, that the immediate anger, and so if we were to peel that away, the unfold that, you're looking at fear, right? The anger is an expression of fear, and I'm fearful of something. So she gets emotional. As a father, you feel a fear. So that in of itself goes right to the heart of it. And so your hackles, whatever that is, Hackles of fear. So these are these are fears that begin to emerge. That's one piece. Another g- great piece in just the story that you just shared with us is that uh, it's the fear that gets in the way of the listening. Um, whatever she's uh, whatever she's struggling with yesterday, and you want to be the dad. You you want to do, and you're the you're the father. And whatever it is that you're so supposed to provide in your mind, are you able to provide it or not? And giving, um, giving advice, it, that's, that's the quick path to try and resolve that fear. And yet the, the more powerful path is to go into a listening and inquiring mode. Now, this has a lot to do with even our conversation today about Juneteenth. And it goes back to the self and awareness of self. And in a way, Juneteenth is intended to be a celebration of overcoming a fear. Yeah. And there it is. And our anger, our disposition towards not being inclusive or being more exclusive, not listening well, those are all those are all manifestations of different forms of fear that we carry and that we have. So in that story that you just shared with us, there's a lot of power in it. Because in order for us to really inquire and listen and open up and be respectful towards each other and be inclusive and honor diversity, we have to move past our fears that get in the way of us listening and, and empathizing and seeking understanding of the other. Yeah. I you know, thank you, Edgar. I know also as a parent, you know, part of the constant struggle I have internally is how do I help my children be successful knowing what the current system is. And then, you know, that's kind of in, it's almost in struggle in constant struggle with the be yourself. You'll be successful because you're yourself. Yeah. (laughs) You know, the system is this. And if you do this way, it'll be the system, right? I mean, you teach them, 
you know, stupid, stupid parent things like, you know, the importance of a strong handshake and looking people in the eye and, um, you know, uh, understanding kind of people across the different ages that have different expectations of you. And, um, and then, you know, my extreme points of pride are, you know, when they are just authentically themselves. Yeah. It's also my biggest point of frustration sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the challenge. And then you, and then you've got to integrate. And so, think about all the different expressions we have. You got to play the system. You got to, you got to learn how to play the game, right? You have to be able to operate within the context, and you have to know the rules. And you got to play by the rules. Yet you got to be yourself. And you've got all these different tensions that are that are kicking about. So here's the movie reference. Okay. Right. It has um, so little to do with diversity. Um, and so I apologize for that in advance. But uh, the conversation you, you were just you were just having with me made me think of the movie Moneyball. Uh. Because it was a it was a tradition challenging movie. Right. I mean, and uh, the book is way better than the movie. Frankly, read the book. I mean, there's. And I agree. I do agree with the review of Michael Lewis. Uh, someone once wrote that, uh, or said that uh, if, he, if he wrote a book about the history of the paperclip, they'd read it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's such a, a wonderful. I mean, in in the book, I mean, there are certain chapters where he goes back into the really old school statistics um, foundations of this. Um, uh-huh. uh, but you know, the part the part that the movie's about, and 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 the part that I refer to is the challenge of that manager, Billy Bean, uh, from the Oakland A's, Mm -hmm. to believe an Ivy League-educated individual mathematically could prove success different, completely and utterly different than the traditions. You know, and this was... um, I mean, he, he got... He put together the Island of Misfit Toys... And his scouts didn't believe. No, his his management didn't believe. I mean, and he had to do such radical things mm-hmm. that have forever changed the game. By the way, I mean, all of the teams that are doing this are are using that kind of approach now, versus the the belief in the traditions. And you know, the belief in some of those scouting traditions were to be an effective pitcher, you needed to be above six foot tall with a certain certain length of arm. Right, it actually didn't matter what you could produce; it only mattered what the appearances were. And 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 maybe that is a diversity movie in some sense because uh, you know similar questions are happening. Similar questions are happening now. Is we're being challenged, especially in an organization and in a business, of who can produce and why haven't we paid attention to this before? Yeah. And and these are all the these are all the approaches that we advocate and that we've learned through our work with organizations design thinking, uh, systemic changes <laughs> to how things get done and how we leverage innovation and creativity through inclusion, diversity, everyone having a voice. I mean these are all aspects and in a micro in a sense, yeah. these these provide us with the moments of of uh, proof uh, that these work, that mutual respect, listening to one another is truly a competitive advantage. 
And it's an advantage to us as, as a society in the place that we're at today that we learn to just continuously open up and listen. Uh, we don't, to say that we're changing the rules by going back and holding on to what we've had in the past, that's not great evidence of how we move forward. It's just not. Well, those two questions at the front end of design thinking, and you and I, you know, we, we just, um, we have this deep, deep affection, even love for design thinking process. Yeah. Those first two questions of, you know, first, what is, I mean, with some objective, objectiveness to state what, what is the current situation, mm-hmm. then that second question of what if. Right. Um, you know, and I think it's interesting because I was, um, you and I were in a conversation with some of my uh, work colleagues last week about, uh, we're hosting a design session this week, and there was two, two really interesting kinds of things. You know, one of them was uh, a sharing that you, it's possibility focused. You don't use that process to, you know, answer a defined question. Mm-hmm. You use it to explore possibilities. Yeah. And then, you know, talking with somebody that really wanted to make sure that these things found their way into that, into the answers. Like, you know, and I think that's the opposite. If you already know the answers, you don't use that style of process, right? There are other more effective processes. Yeah. Um, There's a comfort that comes. If you enjoy design thinking like you and I do, there's a comfort that comes with not knowing the answers. Yes. There's a comfort I think knowing that, was that the, there's an unknown. There's a comfort knowing that there's an unknown. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, I've had so many conversations in these last couple of years um, over the, over a lot of the racial issues in our country. Why are we getting rid of statues? That's our past. You know, and I think of Juneteenth. I mean, I, you know, the tragic, <laughs> the tragedy of the country decides that slavery is illegal. And then two years later, a state tells its, tells its folks that really now slavery is, is, is abolished. Right? I mean, that, that's a tragic story of a two-year lag time in, in one of our states. Mm-hmm. But the conversations we've had is about that. It's not about the future possibility. And it is that nostalgia holding on and what gives somebody an openness? I mean, there's you and I, we always get into this conversation. There's a sense of loss there too. And we have to grapple with the loss to move forward. We have to move through a psychological transition, a reorientation to the change. And um, oftentimes that's very difficult. So this is the ultimate equity conversation, right? I mean that it's, um, for somebody else to gain doesn't automatically mean I lose. Yeah. To look at it through the level, through, through the lens of abundance versus scarcity. Yeah. Like where we keep fighting over the same things because we're afraid we're going to lose something again. That's the fear. That's the, that's, that's the manifestation through the anger. And in a way, uh, boy, I'll tell you, in a way, uh, as corny as it sounds, courage. The courage to be comfortable with the unknown and to see it as an opportunity to explore the opportunistic side of that, not always the fear-based side. Yeah. And that, that becomes key to, to, to success. It is. One and, of, and, and, and this is the idea of you know, creating change 
and we talk, we've talked about this here, that the ability to adapt to change is to survive. The ability to create change is to, is to truly succeed. And to have that mindset and that approach to thinking about the future, uh, I think Juneteenth, more than anything else, I believe is a reminder to us to, to keep moving forward, that we can create a, a, great, a better future, which is what we do with organizations when we work with them. As the question is always, what's your definition of success for the future and how do we get there? And at times that some of the best strategic decisions are not what are we gonna what are we going to start doing and what are we going to do better? Very often it's what do we need to stop, stop. doing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, Edgar, that's such a good place, I think, for us to, um, to end. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for the, the puzzling question. Uh, the, thanks for offering up places to think, um, places to think about who am I and, and, and hopefully our audience too, who are they? And, uh, and what a different future and brighter future might look like. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm Ken Sagendorf. I'm Edgar Papke. Thanks for listening to All Things True Alignment. See uh, you next time around. And remember, reach out to us. Info at truealignment.com. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>